Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, by a Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Peace won't just come to us, Stark. We are going to have to meet it halfway. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is The Illusion We Call Peace, our final episode on Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker from 2010. We will do our usual thematic wrap on setting, imperialism, power fantasy, and more. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazahira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. As always, we will start our wrap-up episode by diving into the game's setting, which is predominantly Costa Rica, with some Nicaragua thrown in near the end. Of course, there are these countries stand in for Latin America broadly, as this game's themes about proxy war and imperialism can be applied to most countries in America's backyard. We've talked a lot about those other countries and their histories already. Allende in Chile and Che in Cuba, etc., but now we can focus on these two countries proper, and if there is anything else we can glean from those locations. Let's start with Costa Rica. Like the rest of the Americas, it was land populated by various indigenous groups prior to the arrival of white settlers. Here in Costa Rica, it was a mix of Mesoamerican and Andean cultures prior to European colonization. Then, one of history's greatest monsters, Christopher Columbus, arrived on Costa Rica's eastern coast during his final voyage in 1502. He was supposedly showered with gifts by the natives, though very likely he just killed and took what he wanted. Similar golden showers were noted by conquistador Gil Gonzalez de Vila, who landed at Costa Rica's west coast in 1522. These riches are what gave Costa Rica its name, translated to Rich Coast. Costa Rica would remain a Spanish colony for centuries, though its national boundaries and identity would not be forged till much later. It was considered part and parcel of a province with Guatemala and included land which is now modern-day Panama, the country to Costa Rica South. Since we like to talk about frontiers on this podcast, it's worth highlighting how amorphous and political national borders are. These aren't concrete, immutable divisions that can't be overcome, and as someone who believes in open borders and amnesty, I strongly believe that borders themselves are violence, not the people crossing over them. Also worth noting that Costa Rica borders the Caribbean on its east, the home of MSF and Coleman's Target, and the Pacific on the west, or perhaps Pacifica Ocean. That puts Costa Rica directly in the middle of the snake MSF and Paz storyline, who is our proxy for Zero or, or Cypher in this game. 
Anyway, back to Costa Rican history. Costa Rica didn't have a war for independence, but was a confederation of Spanish colonies that gained independence following Spain's defeat in the Mexican War for Independence, which also coincides with Spain pulling back from its American colonies to address the threat of Napoleon back in Europe. September 15, 1821 is generally celebrated as Costa Rican Independence Day. 1856 is when the misadventures of William Walker, American filibuster, would begin in Central America, including Costa Rica. We documented that asshole and his fall back in episode number 41, The Perfect Deterrent, as it relates to the character of Hot Coldman. Costa Rica would organize as a republic in 1869, which, nice. We would start to see increasing American enterprise ventures into Costa Rica during the late 1800s and into the 1900s. As for Costa Rica itself, its chief exports would be bananas and coffee, two of my favorites, but also specific points of interest in this narrative. Costa Rica would go on to have one of the more peaceful existence of nations since its birth, which is probably a major reason Kojima said his story here. Even Cecile notes that this was supposed to be a place without war. This story, in my opinion, is trying to show you that no such place exists anymore. The entire world is a battlefield. Further, any country's neighboring those in strife is likely to see spillover, turning every conflict into a regional one by default. Costa Rica's peaceful history in the last 175 years has two specific exceptions. The first is the coup d'etat of 1917, when the Minister of War and Navy, Federico Tinoco, overthrew the democratically elected President Alfredo Flores for reasons that mainly seem to do with being mad about taxes on big capital. Big bad. (laughs) The coup was supported by Costa Rica's conservative oligarchy, banks and coffee growers, the military, and the Catholic Church. So, you know, the three pillars of conservatism. Tinoco's reign would be short-lived. After his brother was assassinated in 1919, he'd take his family and flee, and new elections were held. Tinoco opposition leader Julio Garcia would go on to win the presidency. She's Huerfana. Her mother died when she was small, and she lost her grandparents in the Civil War. She hates war with a passion like no other. The other conflict of note is one specifically mentioned over the course of this game, that is the Costa Rican Civil War that lasted a whopping 44 days. I don't mean to be flippant, but when you've spent 20 years of your life in wars without end, the 44-day span from March 12, 1948 to April 24th just kind of sticks out. 2,000 people did lose their lives during the conflict. When Galvez feeds us Paz's fake history, he mentions her grandparents, who were her legal guardians at the time, died in the Civil War, and this is where her feigned hatred for war formulated. I'm not going to go too much further into the Civil War, mostly because it's a little more complicated to pull apart as the lines don't break down neatly in terms of ideology. There was a communist vanguard party that helped nullify the elections that started the Civil War, but neither side of the conflict was ideologically monolithic. The rebelling force, led by José Figueres Ferrer, would force President Picado and his faction out of the country and then disbanded the army. He oversaw the provisional government's next 18 months of activity when a new constitution was drawn up. Odilo Ulate came into power from there. This all laid the socio-political foundations for our setting in this game, and we've touched on Costa Rica's peace constitution and how it is a country without an army throughout our Peacewalker coverage. 
When we talked about the settings of MGS4, we talked about how the individual places felt like time traveling back through a century of American imperialism. This game works the opposite way, almost as if reliving the colonization of Central America. Your first mission finds you landing on a beach, not unlike the conquistadors of old. Despite a mix of urban locations such as warehouses, the early maps in this game are very nature-focused, jungles and swamps and the like, or in other words, what this country looked like before it was touched by humans. This gives way to stages in the ruins of Cochiquetzal, a symbol of the Aztec, Mayan, and other Mesoamerican cultures that lived here prior to white settlers. And then the maps start becoming more industrialized and militarized. We work through military installations, a mining village and its neighboring quarry, before we eventually cross over to Nicaragua and a U.S. military base. All symbols of America's extractivist foreign policy. We go do war so that we can strip countries of their resources and use it for our own. Even little flourishes like turning local villages into prison camps or how other towns have been evacuated due to contamination from mines and factories, all of this paints a picture of what America was and still does, not just in Latin America, but the world over. And I, I, I'm not that familiar with Costa Rican history specifically outside of this game's context, but like that's just sort of... I think, I think specifically the most interesting thing for certain this game is... is uh, them being recognized as a, as a country without an army because you know it, they love to refer to specifically all the big boss games love to be an army without a country so mm-hmm. hand and glove fit for a big boss to go there but yeah it's just you know it's it's a good fit like you said it's it's they did their research to figure out exactly what country to use and it's just, it's Central America is just not used enough for any setting. Like, I don't know. I feel like Central and South, the Global South in general, it's just not, you know, nobody sets anything there. Yeah. Like, the most you'll get is you'll, you'll be lucky to get like a sepia toned, uh, weird flashback or something like an episode in a, in a AMC show or something like that. No, no specific AMC shows that I'm thinking of. Um, but there's not a lot of like, uh, western art that's just like set in that specifically that region like you might get more africa so like, like specifically sub-saharan africa you might get more i mean technically australia is a global south technically <laughs> not like practically i think you see it in like a couple like tomb raider games yeah. like the ones that are like treasure hunter maybe an uncharted game i can't remember oh, i only sure. remember the ones that are in uh the himalayas but it also feels <laughs> like those are kind of like agnostic research in terms of what they do like mm. they don't look into the ideology or what's been going on there they're all interchangeable yeah they're all inter- they're, they're all mm-hmm. it's all the same place basically um yeah i don't know it's it's hard to it's hard to because it's just i have the same reaction when, when anyone sets something in somewhere in asia that is not mainland japan mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where it's like yeah it's just you know it's or you know during vietnam during the vietnam war but it's just it's it's I guess it's refreshing. I guess I guess it's just not a, a setting that has been utilized very much. And I like that. I guess is my yeah. it makes Peace Walker really stand out. It's even even among Medigo games, this is the one that's set in Costa Rica. Like there's no it's not I also kinda like personally, I mean I, I get that it's it's what reminds me most of MGS three is that it's set in the one, I mean, I guess so is one, but like that's I don't count that. 
Um, I think that's the best. That, that, that's not to shit on MGS4 again, but I think that's the best way to do one of these games is just have it in one location. Mm-hmm. Sort of progressive narrative where you just, it's just about moving along point to point in this area and not doing a Deus Ex style globe trotting adventure. Yeah. And uh, to be clear, I didn't know a whole ton about Costa Rica prior to writing up this episode. Some of the earlier stuff about uh, Che and um, Chile, I did know from other readings, but Costa Rica is not something that you know, you definitely aren't taught shit about it in school uh, to any degree. Um, and then it just doesn't get mentioned as much, except when your friends go there or you watch a Jurassic Park movie. <laughs> um, and that's not, it's not to shit on the country. It's just like you say, it has so little cachet in terms of popular culture um, that it doesn't brush up on other topics. Well, I think specifically, uh, I, 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 this isn't this is not like much as I want to make this a point about like Western chauvinism, like pro Western ideas. This is also something that I think everyone does. Like if there hasn't wars are like the, the main currency of history. Like the, that's the those are the important events if you're not a warlike country you just don't really matter as far as like that macro historical perspective goes it's unfortunate this yeah. case but it is, it is the case and even historians say like you know people people just care more about like there's a couple like i think i found like two the two history people on youtube who are not raving like raving reactionary lunatics and they both are like yeah it's unfortunate this is what people care about is war this is like the main thing people want to talk about. First comes Nicaragua, toppling the pro-American Somoza regime. In preparation, we've begun instigating anti-Somoza sentiment and providing aid to the Sandinista National Liberation Front. You're manipulating Sandinista into overthrowing Somoza for you. After the revolution, Nicaragua will become a socialist state. We should probably talk about Nicaragua too, but I'll keep this a bit shorter since we spent a lot less time in Nicaragua properly. I mostly want to focus on the U.S.-backed Somoza regime since our jaunt into the country is only to see the U.S. military base from where Peace Walker is activated. The U.S. was occupying Nicaragua from 1912 to 1933 during the Banana Wars, a 36-year span where America just went buck wild in Central America. They had acquired several territories from Spain following the Treaty of Paris in 1898, including Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, and then they proceeded to wage military campaigns in Panama, the Dominican Republic, Honduras, Haiti, Mexico, and Cuba until 1934. And that's just, you know, overt military campaigns. Who knows how long the covert ones lasted. The purpose of all this should be understood by our listeners. It was to protect American interests, aka ensure America has first dibs on all possible natural resources, while ensuring no pesky socialist governments take root in its backyard. There was, of course, a chauvinist angle as well, thinking the people of Central America were uncivilized and lawless and required us benevolent white Americans to show them the way. Zooming back in on Nicaragua, the U.S. was vying hard to control capital in the country and the region as European influences in the Western Hemisphere were starting to dissipate. It was America's time to grab these countries for its own. 
President Taft and Secretary of State Phil Knox boarded the Dollars for Bullets policy as it relates to Nicaragua, encouraging American investment into the country so as to ascertain long-term control over its economy and resources. This all predates the Nicaraguan Revolution, which started in 1961 but didn't officially end until 1990. After the fact, we'd come to learn Nicaragua as a major theater for the Cold War proxy wars, including the funding of Contras by the U.S. leading to the Iran-Contra affair. Following the U.S. leaving Nicaragua in 1933 at the end of the Banana Wars, the Somoza family took, took over control of Nicaragua by 1937 and would rule all the way until 1979, when the FSLN, or Sandinistas, would finally overthrow the family and take control. The Somoza regime was known for its corruption and increasing economic inequality, but had backing from both the U.S. military and international corporations. During the 30s is when Augusto Sandino waged his revolution in Nicaragua against U.S. forces, where he became a regional hero and symbol of resistance. He was murdered by the National Guard as commanded by Anastasio Somoza, who would go on to take leadership in 1937. The FSLN would rise to power in the 60s, naming themselves Sandinistas after Augusto. This coincided with left-wing revolutions across the world during this time, including Cuba, Algeria, and more. A big political moment in Nicaragua is the earthquake of 1972, a 6.2 magnitude earthquake that killed 10,000 and left 50,000 homeless. International aid flowed in, but the Somoza regime basically embezzled that money or gave it to political allies instead of helping people and rebuilding the country. Hostilities would continue to escalate as the FSLN would build a regime of guerrilla warfare, striking against Somoza and the U.S. proxies in the country. The U.S. would end its support for the Somoza regime in early 1979, but still did what it could to prevent left-wing control of government. June 4th of that year, the Sandinistas would launch a general strike. The Sandinistas would take control of Managua on July 19th, the 18th anniversary of their formation. From there, they would assume power, but also assume all the debts to the U.S., upwards of $1.6 billion, that were incurred by the previous regime. We mentioned this before, but a key part of American imperialism is that whatever country we imperil, we will fuck up their economy to the point that they owe us, and the only way to make good on those debts is to sell off and privatize local resources and industries. Of course, it wasn't all green pastures from there, as Reagan would be a fuck and continue illegal operations into Nicaragua with Contras, into the end of the Cold War and the neoliberalization of the Western world. But I think I can stop there for now. A big part of Metal Gear Solid is legacy, the genes and memes we pass on to those who follow us. And the other big part is American hegemony and how it enforces a narrow worldview that allows the U.S., or the Patriots, to remain on top at all times. By baking the story of Peace Walker so intimately into our real world, Kojima makes a case for his game's politics, pointing out how this fictional world ruled by the Lali Lulelo is pretty much the same as the one we live in day to day. And as mentioned, the only Nicaragua map we have properly in this game is on the U.S. Missile Base, a chunk of land on foreign soil used only for attack and war. All the turmoil in Nicaragua necessarily spilled out into neighboring countries. We watched the war come to Costa Rica, the place Amanda and Chico had to flee to escape Somoza. This is the MSF's haven, our mother base. And with this foothold, we'll back you up even better than before. We're going to turn this pile of junk into something big. 
But there is one more venue I want to specifically highlight, just for posterity if nothing else. Motherbase in the Caribbean. We don't get to really interact with Motherbase directly, but its presence is felt throughout this game, and you keep building more and more platforms up until you actually fight Zeke on the base to end the game. Motherbase was originally a plant built by OTEC, Ocean Thermal en- Energy Conservation, to research and develop thermal efficiency technology, but that never panned out and the base was abandoned. Somehow, Zadornoff wound up in possession of the plant, which is what he offered Snake and Miller at game start. Its main significance, aside from being Coleman's target, is planting MSF in the middle of the Caribbean, making it tangential to several countries impacted by American imperialism, from Cuba to Nicaragua in real life to Costa Rica in this game. Though, let's be honest, the U.S. has probably fucked around there, too. In doing so, it expands the scope of the narrative to be more regional in nature and touches on environmental themes as well, which we discussed in previous episodes. Nuking Mother Base and destroying MSF was just a nice side benefit to Coleman's plan. The real point, in line with actual American imperialism, was to environmentally and economically destroy the Caribbean so that the local communities are freed from their quote-unquote normal jobs of fishing and farming and forced to work for American capitalism instead, either in their own countries now open to American businesses or by fleeing to the U.S. as refugees where they become easy, cheap, exploitable labor by the U.S. government. If these refugees act out of line such as, say, unionize, they can threaten them with deportation. This is one of the more subtle yet evil ways that the U.S. government works to suppress the power of labor. And while I'm here, I want to recommend one of my favorite socialist readings, Disposable Domestics by Grace Chang. It's a great way of understanding how um, U.S. imperialism abroad uh, creates an inflow of labor here that can be exploited, and it specifically focuses on domestic uh, workers like. Uh, nurses, uh, doulas, um, people who are coming here um, for child support, stuff like that. And all of that is to allow, you know, American women to go into the workforce and keep the capitalism machine growing. So it's a really great holistic work at imperialism and capitalism together. I feel like we're kind of repeating ourselves with U.S. imperialism, but also like it, this is the game that really focuses on it more than any other one. Mm -hmm. That like it, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's important to note that in a series that is like hi- extremely hyper real, very rarely I mean, people people make fun of it. You know, like uh, every time you meet someone from a new sort of ethnicity, they have to go into a long. As they die, they go into a, they go over a long. You know, it's basically. Uh, I mean, if, if these games were written earlier than they were, basically like a Wikipedia summation of that entire of that that group of people's entire history. But like they're they're never wrong. Like it's always obviously they do their research in these games. Like nothing in this game is is under like absolutely zero percent of of anything that that anyone is talking about the CAA doing in this game is wrong or over exaggerated. If anything, it's it's like under exaggerated. Like <laughs> if anything, the fact that you sometimes find uh CAA prisoners in some of these places, you, it's weird that you only find one. It should be like 500 because it's, you know, what the CAA right. loves to do. They love their black sites. Uh, I was, because last time I think we talked about how there's no like crazy bosses like psychomantises and stuff. I wonder if that's a deliberate choice because they were going so deep mm. into the factual details. And like imperialism will matter in the Phantom Pain, but when we're talking about Cyprus and Afghanistan, 
um, and Africa. It's not exclusively American imperialism. Um, it definitely is a big part of it, especially in Afghanistan now, but not necessarily at the time. Um, of the, well, I guess they are because we funded the Mujahideen, but it's a it's a different approach. Whereas this being that America's stuff backyard, is a backdrop for uh, XOS also being in those mm-hmm. regions and doing stuff like like it's not explicitly you know the the American the American military presence in both those in both of these regions is is more of a backdrop. Like that's also happening. That's more like how Metal Gear usually does it. Whereas like this game, there's no like there is no, I guess, I guess theoretically Holden's a, a splinter group, but there's no like kind of a hype, like weird. There's no, you know, there's no dead cell. There's no like paramilitary group. It's just the CIA. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no, there's nothing in yeah. between. I guess there's no, there's no like level of the sandwich between Snake and the CIA. It's just the CIA. There's no like crazed there's no terrorist group there's no like cool bot like yeah it's a, I, I think you might be right that there's no that might be why there's no uh like paramilitary group that he has to fight of all these cool themed villains it's just like CAA goons and that's that's yeah, more interesting you, at least for this game they, they don't want you to really think that any of the enemies are cool mm. uh in any specific way i think Although I do like uh, Galvez and Coldman for what they are, and Strange Love, of course. I don't think Strange Love. I, I don't think even when you play the game the first time, you really think Strange Love is a villain. No, neither do I. Well, we continue to this game's take on imperialism and warfare, which we've hit on a lot by virtue of our tour of Latin America imperialism so far. But as always, Kojima is picking up memes he established in previous entries and involving them for the times, both in our real world and the canon of Metal Gear Solid. So far in our coverage of Peace Walker, we've looked at the US, Soviets, Chile, Cuba, and now Costa Rica and Nicaragua specifically. MGS4 depicted a world of forever war, a broken one of snakes and metal gears, but in some sense that it was both abstract and fictional. Well, duh. The regions weren't specifically tied to nations, the opposing forces alluded to imperial and imperiled sides, but ideology was mostly implied at the margins. I think it's still thematically poignant, but what the historical setting allows Kojima to do is add that specificity, point to how actual conflicts in our real world, or approximations thereof, can lead to the dystopian outcomes of Guns of the Patriots. To be fair, we have our own version of dystopia now, just a slightly different one of the specific pieces of Metal Gear DNA starts here. That's Miller's new kind of business, the birth of the PMC. We talked about MSF in depth a few episodes back, including its ideological underpinnings. The evolution from here is one we should be familiar with. Outer Heaven was created to challenge the times, to fight against systems of control, but in the end, it will be adopted by the system and act as another form of control. Just like the system was able to turn the snakes and bosses of the world, anomalies that threatened the system, and, t- and found ways to make sure they extended the life of the system. Don't make me tap the Matrix Reloaded sign. 
We see it in this game's ending. Cypher, Paz trying to bring MSF under their control. We see it in MGS4 when the world is apparently run by PMCs. Big Boss's soaring speech about how they are going to fight the biggest beast of all, the Times, feels like an existential win in the moment, but knowing this new kind of business leads to a world of forever proxy wars and the rise of PMC control should dampen any victory we feel at game's end. Perhaps that's what Big Boss means when he says for us, there is no victory and no defeat, repeating the words the boss used 10 years prior in Salino Yarsk. Yeah, and I feel like because this is, spoiler alert, last time we were playing as, well, I guess Ground Zeroes. Ground Zeroes doesn't have like an overarching plot. It's just sort of, mm-hmm. it, it's a, we're, we're, not, we're not going to separate it. No, but I don't think. Um, it, so it is kind of, it's kind of very, it's very bleak in retrospect that this is kind of the last time you play as Big Boss. And so this is like the last, this is really the last, like, time the series really focuses on him trying to realize the boss's legacy like this is what he comes to <laughs> mm-hmm. like this this is it this is this is what you thought something that was obvious even i i would say this even in the universe would be obviously like that's not gonna work out and that you know i guess that brings in as a so this is something we'll talk about again uh it's not one I've seen a lot. I, I kind of remember seeing it a few years ago. This idea that Miller was a plant, that like like he was he was deliberately sent to kind of fuck up bosses, big bosses, ideal like ideological. I don't know to, to poison it. I guess it's the right word. I mean that that's kind of a theme in B that Miller's kind of the reason Diamond Dog becomes an instrument of instrument of vengeance. Mm-hmm. And like yeah, I, I, he poisons. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I've always thought that like personally, he he poisons it inadvertently with just his lust of revenge. You know, um, but I think there might be something to this idea that he's sort of a, he's a double agent. I mean, it wouldn't be yeah, surprising I, if if both he and Ocelot were both double agents. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I think Asad even has a line, what if you're a spy? What if I'm a spy? Uh, which, and they're probably both spies. I think Miller, I feel at least here in Peace Walker, he seems pretty earnest yeah. in his convictions, but we do know he's having chats with Zero on the side. Um, but I do think he does he does have that deleterious effect in Phantom Pain after he goes through his own traumas. Um, but I think that's, you know, it's a function of everyone. It's not exclusively Miller. Um, I I think he has, you know, he kind of has his own agenda, and at times it does align with Zero, but at other times it also aligns with Big Boss. But he clearly is betrayed, or feels betrayed by, like, the Venom Snake switch, Mm -hmm. and that's supposedly why he goes to, you know, become Solid Snake's mentor, and I guess that's his redemption arc of sorts. Um, Yeah, just in this game specifically, because everything about war as a business is his idea. Like, it's all his idea. Mm-hmm. Snake doesn't seem to really have any... Snake is, is, a, is a classic idealist. He, he just he doesn't know how to achieve the thing he wants. He just knows the thing he wants. And he just is sort of, sort of kind of... He's just going to float along until he finds it, I guess. So, I don't know. I, I think there's an idea to that. But I'm not entirely sure it'd be something that was deliberate or supported. This is a problem with making a series about people betraying each other. Is you're going to think everyone's betraying everybody. Which is a shame, because it would ruin what is, I think is one of the most earnest friendships in the series. But, you know, that's, that's Metal Gear. 
Put simply, nuclear deterrence is the idea of using nukes to keep nukes in check. If one side launches nuclear weapons, the other is sure to launch theirs in retaliation, which makes launching an act of suicide. In the end, neither side can use its nukes. It's thanks to this doctrine that the world's two superpowers have avoided all-out confrontation. Peace Walker, like the gink big boss game before at MGS3, allowed Kojima to once again zoom in on the meme of nuclear war, which again is appropriate for the times and the scene. But in MGS3, the new conversation was still narrow, insofar it mostly related to the Shagohot project and Davy Crockett's and conflict directly between the US and USSR, plus or minus a Cuba. This game has all that, but blows up the geopolitical scope to include various nations and non-nation, outer nation, entities. In other words, Kojima Productions has created context to put this nuclear conflict in relation to the US, USSR, United Nations, and the Latin American countries this game is set in, not to mention both Outer Heaven and Cypher as state-like players. The Solid Snake games are set after the quote-unquote end of history, after America was declared the winner of the 20th century. So while the ideas about nuclear retaliation and apocalypse existed in previous titles, the context was mostly limited in scope to the U.S. and the Patriots. Mother Russia's war orphans like Gerlukovich represent soldiers with no nation following the fall of the Soviet Union. This game dives much further into the lived reality of the Cold War, a fear of nuclear attack at a moment's notice. It also dives further into deterrence theory and mutually assured destruction. It takes us intimately inside NORAD and Strategic Air Command and the Joint Chiefs and into the SAC or sorry, and into the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks or SALT that coincide with the climax of this game, specifically the SALT 2 talks. There were two rounds of SALT conferences that occurred between the US and USSR. The first going from 1969 to 1972, and the second ranging from 1972 all the way to 1979. In the 90s, this meme would be revived for the START meetings, Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. If you recall from MGS1, the president, George Baker, aka Solidus, was away at the START 3 meetings while Solid Snake infiltrated Shadow Moses. George Sear, sorry, not George Baker. That sounded wrong. George Baker's, uh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, it sounds like the arms tech president. The Soviet leader for both of the SALT agreements was Leonid Brezhnev, which also links us back to MGS3. Volgin and Ocelot's units were ostensibly working for Brezhnev in order to oust Khrushchev, even though both Volgin and Ocelot had hidden much larger agendas than propping up Brezhnev. I'm not sure if the exact details of each conference are worth going over, but broad strokes. SALT-1 was more of a meeting of accounting, trading in older types of nukes and ICBMs for newer ones, more likely to be deployed now by a submarine instead of silos. Think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis cover story in Metal Gear Solid 3, about how the U.S. removing missiles in Turkey was just a cover for Sokolov. Those missiles were destined for decommissions, as, as is due to obsolescence. A lot of what takes place in the first SALT talks, while attempting to limit the overall nuclear arsenal, was just as much about setting up acceptable bounds as both nations look to update their arsenal's gear. Another interesting note is that the talks put an upper limit on submarines and submarine-launched ballistic missiles, or SLBMs, operated in combination between the US and NATO. It was 50 subs with 800 launchers. If they crossed that upper limit, the Soviets were also allowed to expand. But I just want to call out the linking of NATO and the U.S. as a combined entity. 
NATO is another proxy for American hegemony, enforcing the same capitalistic and Western chauvinist worldview as our country or the patriots do. Just feel like it's worth highlighting as this shit goes down in Ukraine with very little examination of NATO's broader role as an imperialist force. I think NATO is probably the closest parallel we have in the, in the real world to the Patriots. Oh man, that's, that's good. In the end, the biggest takeaway of SALT 1, such as they were, were each superpower recognizing each other's sovereignty, which, lol, agreed a principle of non-interference, also LOL, and to promote cultural and economic ties between the nations in the spirit of goodwill. Can I get another LOL? This would lead to a period we know as detente. Direct hostilities between the U.S. and USSR would lessen, and fears of a direct war quieted. But this is more of a shifting of the battlefield than a call to peace. Military and intelligence actions would now play out through proxy wars in Central America and Southeast Asia. Detente would officially end with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union would return to pre-detente levels. That's why you will see a renewed increase in nuclear threat stories in pop culture in the 80s. The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen from the mid-80s are just two examples of it, as are movies like The Red Dawn. Even the 1987 Bond movie, The Living Daylights, returns to old Cold War sensibilities. Oh, and the Soviets in Afghanistan? Well, there's a whole-ass Metal Gear game specifically about that, which we will go buckwild on sometime in the future. I know I'm a broken record here, but every ounce of our coverage is building up to our MGSV episodes, where I hope to put a bow on all these characters and political themes in an effort to show you why I hold these games in highest regard, and why I think MGSV is a masterpiece, despite how people might dismiss its story or ideas. Remember, Anything you want to get in here? Uh, this film is dedicated to the great Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan. <laughs> that's that's the that's, yeah. this is the. It's really like it's really a perfect setting for history, but yeah, that. This is kind of why I like um, another reason I like. We seem to have this weird. I don't know if it's again. I say in this country, even though this is a Japanese game made by Japanese developers, but it's a very they're very American. It's games. It's again, we love, we still love 80s. Like, like the 80s aesthetic is, I think, objectively, probably the coolest aesthetic of any singular decade in American history. But like, it's a weird thing because of that. We pick up like everything. Like people have like fond memories of that kind of 80s culture that was like even more now, more so than we are now, like completely, absolutely neurotically paranoid about nuclear war. Like, insane to the fact to the extent that i think it broke the brains of every adult who was alive during that point and we're sort of reaping the unintended consequences of that now still uh, now that all all of our all of our political commentators are now like gen x weirdos who are just like completely psychotic um but like like i i like it's another thing i like about peace walker it's extremely just aesthetically very 70s and i love that it's because we love 60s stuff still in this country. And, you know, I love personally love 60s stuff. That's why we like MGS3, we like Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, like 50s and 60s stuff, I'm a big fan of the. Uh, it's a weird aesthetic. I'm a big fan of like uh, the 50s, like Project Blue Book, Blue, or is it Blue Bird, Blue Book aesthetic, like the, the government covering up like alien aesthetic from like 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. the X Files aesthetic. 
yeah yeah like roswell stuff yeah and... i just like that aesthetic i don't it's it's weird because i don't actually know if i believe in aliens but i just i i'm a fan of like that sort of redacted aesthetic like i like it's a good setting for like investigative stories like i, I just enjoy that stuff um yeah yeah speculative kind of fiction yeah yeah uh, but 70s stuff we just don't it's like all of our 70s our, our only real like cultural meme of the 70s is like the french connection or like like that or like you know like a black rotation film parallax view and all those like cia like paranoia yeah. films yeah and it's like we don't have anything else, like serpico i guess <laughs> we don't have any other like that's it for the 70s for a whole decade that's all we think of whereas like the 80s even even the stuff i think everyone likes it's it's all like because people like that stuff it's sort of like been the rising tide it's been the boat the, the rising tide for like all this other shitty 80s schlock and like i don't know where's all the 70s schlock we made it's not like every single movie made in hollywood in the 70s was a tense like a uh, political thriller like we made a bunch of dumb shit then too but it's just like people don't you know it, yeah when i think of the, the 70s, 70s. Just, i think it's the most miserable decade in american history so I think we just kind of ignore it collectively. But this game doesn't. I like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I think of like great 70s movies, I think of things that have nothing to do with the times, like Star Wars mm. or The Godfather. Um, and surely there was some commentary on what was happening in America at the time because we're dealing with Vietnam. But I think that's why in terms of like modern day storytelling as it was in the 70s was mostly like the conversation and stuff like that. Um, you either had these like CIA paranoid stuff or you had these like cop movies like Serpico or the French connection and stuff like that. Um, but we'll see. I, know, I mean, just... taxi driver is another one that pops to mind. That's, yeah. And that does not paint a pleasant picture of the seventies as all. everything in the seventies um, in our, in our collective memory is like really crime job stuff. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and like we, uh, I guess you think of like, what's like, what are like the, the important American movies set in the seventies that have made, been made since. And it's like, Zodiac. <laughs> Which again, yeah, I, that's a, I, that love, I love that setting too, but like we did other stuff. I, I mean, it's just yeah, a collective yeah. embarrassment of disco. And you know, Kojo is not embarrassed by that. He doesn't understand what that is. That's no, not, no, that's no, not no, New no. Order. He doesn't know what that is. Music? Music made before 1982? He has no concept. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I mean, I assume anyone who's like a Metal Gear head knows about this, but it is kind of interesting that the main big boss games are essentially 10 years apart and very vested in the decades they are Mm in. Um, It's, you know, 1964 is Metal Gear Solid 3. This game is 1974. And then the preponderance of uh, MGSV uh, is 1984. And I mean, it's hard to get that 80s aesthetic in nowhere Afghanistan, um, but the music at least does a lot of that, as does some of the technology. Uh, they. Boogie Nights, I guess, is the other one I could say. That's a little more what I'm looking at, more stuff like that. I don't know. I just enjoy that this is a 70s game that is not set in like a grimy New York street. It's just it's it's refreshing. It's not something you see as much. That's another reason, like I said, it's it's one of the reasons this game even though I don't think gameplay-wise it's it's really even close to the best Metal Gear game, I think it's just got the most uh, maybe second most unique setting after the Sega Eater. Obviously. Uh, where were we? Oh, yeah. Well, Salt 1 seemed to be more on accounting and inventory. He actually wrote that Salt out of the t- script. I'm not going to let you get away with that. <laughs> damn it. Damn it. I almost had a good segue. 
Salt too actually tried to do something worthwhile while material reduction with material reduction and limits on nuclear warheads. A major breakthrough was reached in Vladivostok summit in 1974, the very same summit that coincides with Peace Walker's activation and is why the president was not part of the SAC meeting snake dialed into. The breakthrough was basically an agreement on a basic framework and later agreements limiting the number of strategic launchers would be reached in 1979. The Soviet incursion into Afghanistan would come a few months later, however, and President Carter withdrew from the treaty in January 1980, even though the terms were still mostly honored until 1987. The SALT agreements would eventually be superseded by the aforementioned START-1 treaty in 1991. Sorry to bore you with all this, but despite these ongoing negotiations, decades worth even, and flows ins and outs of periods of detente, I can't stress enough that nothing materially was done to lessen the threat of nuclear war. These agreements and salts and starts created an illusion of peace, the pretense of decreasing hostilities, but again, nothing was done. Each nation still maintained a nuclear arsenal capable of ending the world a thousand times over, and now in 2022, even more nations have joined that harrowing fraternity. Which brings us back to the very final screen of Metal Gear Solid 1998, the text that appears when you end the game. In the 1980s, there were more than 60,000 nuclear warheads in the world at all times. The total destructive power amounted to one million times that of the Hiroshima A-bomb. In January 1993, START II was signed and the United States and Russia agreed to reduce the number of deployed strategic nuclear warheads to 2,500 to 3,000 in each nation by December 31, 2000. However, as of 1998, there still exists 26,000 nuclear warheads in the world. We, as a society, are still carrying the sins of our nuclear fathers, and if nothing has changed, will be passed on to the next generations as well. Listen... MSF never would have gotten this big if it weren't for them. This mercenary business we've built. Someday it's going to be a new driving force in the world economy. Really quickly, I do want to mention how this game continued the theme of war economics from MGS4. Drebin points have been replaced with GMP, or gross military product, which we mentioned last time should remind you of GDP or GNP, which measures reserves, which are measures usually reserved for nations and territories, appropriate as snake or big boss is nation building, more or less. And as is true of our real-world economy, a lot of R&D is driven by military spending, which is the primary usage of GMP in this game. And while weapons development is the main goal, you'll invent quote-unquote civilian products along the way as a byproduct, from energy drinks to deodorant spray and tortilla chips. Check out episode number 42, A New Kind of Business, where we dive into the economics of MSF in full. I always, I wonder if we ever do, if I ever do find a way to play Death Stranding, um, that doesn't involve uh, paying $350 for a used PS4. I'm not going to do. Um, I, I do wonder if we're ever going to really get into his weird fascination with always having. He always likes having his, like the hero groups in these games, like invent, be, be the people who are responsible for a bunch of like dumb ephemera from that generation, from that time. Like he loves having, like this, he, he loves having, implying that, that. Big Boss indirectly invented energy drinks. <laughs> okay, thanks. I, I just I don't know if that's like just a, a jokes he wants to do, or if he really is just like obsessed with this kind of capitalist 
detritus, I guess is the word I would use. Because, you know, in, in Death Stranding, I, I, even I played enough of that game to get the monster energy drink stuff, which is just bizarre. But yeah. that has I wonder to be, if it's a. That, I was going to say, I wonder if it spins out. Like, he's like initially in Peace Walkers, like, this is going to be tied to themes, but now it's just like Monster Energy <laughs> pulls up a truckload of money to his house. Is like, put us in your next game or something. Maybe it um, is just kind of a, a growing thing because in three, they don't imply, they imply that they invented a lot of military tech. Or, you know, he did the first Halo jump. But not yeah, yeah. really, there's not really any point where <laughs> paramedics like, Snake, have you heard of Doritos? Huh? <laughs> Um, uh, which is funny, uh, just because the original version of Peace Walker did have Doritos in the game, um, but then, but for I think licensing or branding reasons, it eventually just became tortilla chips. Zero popping um, in, like once you pop, you can't stop. Makes like what? So as Metal Gear does, Peace Walker creates a rich political tapestry of violent actors that you yourself have to navigate with violence or perhaps without. We've lauded Metal Gear Solid for its non-lethal play before, especially in MGS3 where it dovetailed theme, story, and game mechanics and rewards beautifully. And we gave praise to MGS4 for taking a stance of pacifism as an existential good worthwhile even if the rewards were not there. Peace Walker, and of course V, is the best realization of non-lethal play in the Metal Gear series. We've gone through the, we've gone from don't kill people for rewards to don't kill people because it's the right thing to do, and now we have don't kill people so you can add them to your base back home so they can cook for you and probably kill for you as well. Okay, maybe a little glib, but now pacifism isn't just there to make things easier in terms of alerts and firefights. It moves forward both gameplay and story. As you extract more and more soldiers from the battlefield, your capabilities at Mother Base will expand. You'll be able to staff various teams, build out more and more platforms, and especially send out combat units. That last one seems to go against pacifism, which we'll circle back to in a little bit. In terms of gameplay, the biggest change is of course the Fulton mechanic, which allows you to extract a limited number of enemies from a given map, depending on your level. But Metal Gear is always expanding the ways in which you can non-lethally fuck with and neutrally neutralize guards, and Peace Walker is no different. Given the stripped-down nature of the PSP, Peace Walker CQC isn't as complex as MGS3 or 4s in terms of control. But it does add the CQC chain, which allows you to CQC multiple opponents at once, making it a viable option when engaging multiple enemies. Even in a full-on firefight with armored troops, getting in close and chaining CQC attacks is effective and allows you to continue pacifist play even when spotted. As we've mentioned before, for most players, MGS plays as non-lethal in stealth, lethal in battle. But this game makes CQC a melee option, which was previously just a stealth one, which has helped me achieve many a non-lethal mission completion. Back are the usual array of non-lethal weapons, the Mark 22 and Mosin-Nagant and rubber-bulleted shotguns. There's even a Fulton C. Gustav unlockable at higher levels that allows you to shoot rockets and Fulton multiple enemies at once. 
Magazines, sleep gas mines, and other placeable distractions are back as well. So the net effect of all this is Big Boss builds an army, but also something more. It's almost a country, but not a stateless nation, an outer heaven. There is an inherent contradiction here that the more peaceful play, the stronger your army becomes. Don't think it undercuts the themes, but instead buoys the narrative of Big Boss, both within the universe and without. In the context of this world, Big Boss is both a legend and someone to be feared, America's greatest hero and also a war criminal of its own making. That's the position we the players have outside the narrative too. We know he's the quote-unquote bad guy in the MSX games and helped perpetuate systems of violence that the Patriots built, but we also now know him from two games where he seems rad as hell, a tool of the government or someone else at worst, and at best, a revolutionary hero fighting against the times and American hegemony. This is why I spent a lot of time two episodes ago talking about Big Boss neither as a good guy or bad guy, but as both and neither, as a tragedy. And it's also a big reason why I talked about this game's format in our Peace Walker intro episode. This being of a piece with MGSV is important to me, because bringing home the darker side of Big Boss is cemented in that game. We will, as I say, get there, but there are literally two Big Bosses in our mind through Peace Walker. The good version we've met, and the bad version he becomes, and it's no coincidence that there's literally two big bosses in the Phantom Pain, and its ending being about acknowledging that both versions can be true. I do think Peace Walker might be the least effective on its own in challenging the video game power fantasy, at least in terms of new ways to manifest it. It still has all the hallmarks of previous Metal Gears, incentivizing non-lethal play, your character being manipulated by unseen forces, a torture scene where your character is laid bare, etc. But this might be as close as the player ever comes to controlling a snake at the height of his power. He's not only viewed as a revolutionary hero, he actively whips Amanda and her compas into battle-ready shape, he stops imperialist incursions into Costa Rica, he does a lot of kick-ass things that aren't part of a prescribed path for him, like beating the Cobras was, and he gets cheered as a great leader at the end of Chapter 4. Oh yeah, he also averts nuclear destruction of the entire planet. This again circles back to my previous point about how the point is hammered home in The Phantom Pain. To feel the impact of Big Boss's fall, we need to see his rise. Everything about MGSV is about hollowing out all that good warmth you feel inside when playing Peace Walker. Ground Zeroes features the destruction of Mother Base, the thing you spent all Peace Walker building and revamping. You'll lose limbs, your sense of time and self, your very being. You will become a white, a puppet used to do war crimes, the ultimate tool of someone else. But as you know, we'll get there. I hope y'all don't view this as a cheat, but it really does need to wait till V for us to slam dunk a bunch of our regular beats. It only makes sense that we've been tracking this same set of themes across the games, only to see the tail end of the franchise spend an entire game setting them up to be knocked down by what would be the final entry in the series. For now. But maybe there's a slightly less explicit way this game challenges the power fantasy, especially in the hyper-masculine, rugged individualism of the Western world. 
This game is about solidarity, about connectivity and cooperation. When we discussed various game modes in our last episode, nearly half of them involved interacting with other Peace Walker players, either directly connected via PSP or playing online from the console. The dominant AAA video game narrative is of the hero, the one who stands against all odds and saves the day in the end. Whether it's Nathan Drake or Link or Ezio Auditore or Lara Croft or Samus Aran, your journey and victory tends to be individualized, solo, buying into the great man theory of games history. Peace Walker, in contrast, is about team victories, even if you're still primarily doing solo sneaking missions. Snake has always had a support staff on comms, but now the support is more intimate to gameplay and integral to your survival, in both game and narrative. Support and strike markers are a huge addition to this game. While Snake does his thing, the player can run side ops as MSF members to support Snake, blowing up walls, recovering his gear, extracting soldiers Snake left unconscious. When Zadornov has Snake surrounded at the end, it's Amanda Sandinista's and MSF's combat unit that saves the day, and it's MSF helping you take on Zeke in the very end, delivering support and strikes as requested. And of course, there's co-op play, where you can turn these solo sneaky missions into a team adventure. It makes sense that MSF's logo is Pangea. It's one supercontinent, a unit without borders united in purpose and goal, perhaps in line with the more overt socialist tones of this game. The Solid Snake games represent the post-Cold War era, and all the events in those games are more atomized and individualized, reflecting the American mentality of the individuality winning out. When we start seeing the descent of Diamond Dogs near the end of V, it will be in part due to the lack of unity, lack of singular purpose, and mistrust in the unit. Everyone can be a spy. Everyone can be a traitor. Those are the effects that Big Boss, Zero, Skullface, Ocelot, and Huey manifest from the various backstabbings, sleights of hand, and lusts for revenge. In the end, MSF is stronger in unison, and in doing so challenges the male power fantasy as an individualist vector. Or in the words of my favorite trilogy of the last decade, apes together strong. Yeah, I like I like that the general concept, especially again. It's it's weird they keep bringing like this will make more sense in V, but it, this game I think. I mean, if nothing else, because because of how Ground Zeroes came out, because of what Ground Zeroes is, it's kind of obvious that this was a setup. <laughs> like it's this this being maybe the only one. Kojima ever made that that wasn't billed as the last one means that he actually had some concept for this stuff. It was it certainly seem, seems to be that way more so than because I mean I, I we've I've planned about it enough. A lot of the connective tissue between three and four is just doesn't work for me. You know, it's, it's definitely ad hoc or after the fact. Yeah, it seems like it was made up. Whereas this all seems conceived together. V feels like uh, the first one that doesn't. De- spend a good amount of its running time immediately retconning the last one. In fact, it's as much of a straight continuation of the previous game as any mm-hmm. of the uh, previous Metal Gear entries. I mean, you start out Ground Zero's rescuing two side characters from this game, and generally those side characters don't show up in that game. I mean, imagine if, imagine if two had started a couple of weeks after MGS1 and you were rescuing Meryl. That's more or less what we're doing. What we're doing and the f- great thing is that uh, Peace Walker, because it was mostly a PSP game by that point, was not as played as well. So for a lot of people, uh, it was like, who are these people? Why does it matter? Um, and it, like you can figure it out. I don't think you need Peace Walker to really get Ground Zeroes. No. Um, but it obviously helps a lot. 
I was very excited when I played it, though. That was, that was the most exciting thing about Ground Zeroes to me. To wrap up today, I wanted to return to the topic of sexuality in Metal Gear Solid. The last time we made this a specific topic was the MGS3 wrap-up, the last big boss game. Maybe Solid Snake just has no time to fuck. He looks at his watch and says he couldn't possibly fuck right now as he power walks into Shadow Moses. Thinking of extremely impotent old man Snake. Like, yeah, he's... No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Drill tweets aside, Peace Walker is probably the most overtly sexual of the Metal Gear Solid titles. The game opens with Naked Snake stepping up to his unit, stripping off his shirt, and proceeding to wrestle them all to the ground. The fledgling MSF unit, for their part, seems extremely excited and blessed at this opportunity for some wet tussling in the sand. There are the date missions with Paz and Kaz. There's the tender, kinky jailer prisoner relationship between Dr. Strangelove and Cecile. Kaz seems to always be horny, and Strangelove also as well. We have our requisite scene where Snake is dressed down and his body on display to be treated like meat, or tickled. A lot of this is a continuation of what Metal Gear has been doing, especially with its hyper-masculine militarized trappings. But I think the inherent sexuality, and specifically homoeroticism, stands out in the context of Big Boss's militarized unit, or having a community and a family, and bonds of fellowship. Which, of course, reminds me of war stories like The Lord of the Rings or Bands of Brothers. Stories that are more interested in the bonds between men at war when your own unit is the only heaven, an outer heaven, from the literal hell you are marching towards. I know you have comrades in games like Call of Duty and Medal of Honor, but somehow I doubt they spend time lingering on those relationships. Yeah, I want real quick, that's... So, I, the mirrors make me think now of, like, because Halo, I think, is... Hey, it's not like that done modern contemporary military shooter but it is a military shooter in some ways mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's a little bit there's a little bit of that stuff with interestingly uh not with master Cortana. they have like a very much like a sibling relationship but um now i'm just thinking of other military shooters and and how and it, like and, and it's rated them on how sexy they are like sam fisher doesn't fuck he's too pissed off um yeah, all, all like the DOD yeah, funded, I guess, I don't know if they're funded, inspired military shooters. It's no, never. No, very, very little of like actual, like, even, not even just like homeroticism, just like male bonding. It doesn't happen. That's why I always laugh. Like, I think Metal Warfare 2, there's a guy you're supposed to. I mean, they, they, they do, a, they do a, a, a good bit. Like, Lance Henderson is the bad guy in that game. And he betrays the good guy like faction 
Because at one point he shoots, kills you as you're playing as one of those good guys, which that's like a neat trick. Like you can mm-hmm. see it happen. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's also a point where like the other characters are all mad about it. It's like you do you like that guy? Like you show you at no point did you show any affection for that character. It's just like you're all ju- you're all just like Roger will go like just doing the missions and like never fucking no no bonding of any kind. There's no camaraderie. Which is like the point of war stories, right? Like that's, that's mm-hmm. what you're there for. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking like there's a little bit of that in Halo. That's when Arbiter comes into play, but I guess Sergeant Johnson also. But I'm thinking of other military shooters and like how little you get of that at all. And now, now I'm it's... stuck thinking of like, yeah, it's that's weird. That's that's an interesting. I never really considered it, but that's yeah, man. It's like nothing. Most the honestly the most you get is like Dynasty Warriors games. Like those games have that stuff. That's because they're sweeping romantics, like epic. Yeah, man, this is this is like upsetting to me now. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question, though I kind of know the answer um, because I am familiar with the works of Tom Clancy. But are any of those unit games like the Rainbow Six stuff? Like, is there any kind of that? Because that is a game where you're actually kind of a more of a unit than an individual. Yeah, I don't know but... because I'm only familiar with Rainbow Six Siege and like multiplayer stuff. I don't. Do those games even have story modes? Yeah, I I played uh, the first Rainbow Six like in the early 2000s or late 90s. Yeah, I whatever think maybe it came I out. did. I don't remember anything. But there wasn't anything like that in terms of characterization. No. And that's. Um, I like uh, the older Tom Clancy stuff. We've talked about Hunt for Red October and Clear and Present Danger. Those movies are not horny in the slightest. Um, I mean, maybe Alec Baldwin and Sam Neill have some chemistry, but I think that's the actors. Yeah, I'm just trying to think now, like, because, like, it's either the DoD stuff or the Tom Clancy stuff. It's just like, no, there's no time. There simply is no time for for, for camaraderie. (laughs) We have to stop the nukes. Jack Ryan is here, and he's he can't. He cannot fuck. No time. No. Yeah, I guess. I guess there's a spectrum of that. And like on on that side is on one end is that stuff, and the other end is is extremely horny big boss and, and psychotically insanely horny James Bond. Sir, please. Yeah. <laughs> there's more. But there's yeah. You- there's more homoeroticism in the first ten minutes of Goldeneye than there is in the entirety of the top Tom Clancy's career. <laughs> that's that's great for England, James. By placing this heightened sexuality or homoeroticism in the context of military, Kojima shows the Western player a performance of masculinity they are familiar with and are directed to aspire to be. Big man with big guns beating up the bad guys and robots. But juxtaposed to that is a tender masculinity, where Kaz and Snake can spend time on the beach and get in the love box. The military, despite the wokeification of rhetoric, is an institution that is hostile to soft masculinity and queer people. People always point point to the number of you know queer persons employed by the military, but never what happens to those people or the victims of war who tend to be members of the queer community or the fact why queer people don't have other opportunities in the first place. In its own ranks, there, there may be hazing, humiliation, often through performances of femininity or against gender identity or straight up rectal penetration. But I don't view this as an inherent contradiction, especially given how Kojima doesn't valorize the military at all. In fact, we argue pretty convincingly that it very much tears down the U.S. and other military structures. 
Instead, it shows us how wide the performance of masculinity can be and that it doesn't have to be a cage as defined by the ideals laid out in patriarchy and capitalism. Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker really brings home the theme of male intimacy, a meme in the series going all the way back to Solid Snake and Gray Fox or Snake and Otacon. But now that theme can be evolved, extending beyond just the bonds between two men, but all men, a community, an army without borders. And just a couple quick, you know, post-rant caveats. While I spoke of gender performance in the binary, I do not actually believe it in being a binary. And, you know, the whole concept of gender as defined in the Anglosphere is kind of dubious at best. Second, I want to direct you to a piece by Ruben Ferdinand on his Medium page, The Friend Den, called Metal Gear Solid, Military Masculinity and Homoerotica, which touches on some of these points but goes a little further in depth. I don't know. I just think that's interesting to, to I don't even necessarily mean that the spectrum in between these games has to be like necessarily even sexual. It's just like even Bond has like friends. As much for as much as for as rightly as he's portrayed as sort of an empty sociopath with like no empathy for you know, he just you know, the the game is blood instrument. He's still like he, Felix is his friend. He likes Felix. Like mm-hmm. There's anyone that's in- very emotional about Felix in a, multiple movies, actually. There's, a, there's an entire movie that is, in fact, based around him being mad that his friend got hurt. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the best ones. Benicio Toro gets horribly murdered. It's just it's what you want. <laughs> in a cocaine factory, it's beautiful. Robert Dobby gets lit on fire and blows up. Um, uh, yeah, Big I Ed- think that's Big Edge from Twin Peaks gets killed by a shark. That, that is true. Uh, yeah, no, I think you're right that. It's not even just about how queer stuff is. Uh, we like to talk about that. That's just also like pop culture discourse, what it is. It, but some of it's it also is just also, like... I don't think... I think people... It's still not discussed enough. That is like a central concept of Metal Gear, which mm-hmm. as, as it should be for any series based on David Bowie with a lot of David Bowie influence. Like There's just a androgyny and sort of a fluid sexuality to it that it's always existed and always will. Yeah, uh, Raiden is one of like the greatest characters ever created that like touches on themes of you know gender and sexuality and um, kind of different takes on it. It's so, always, and I think yeah, be- it's always because Raiden's based on David Bowie in large part. I mean, so is every character who's a snake in some way, for, to some extent. <laughs> and Snake is based on Lupin, who's just horny in a, a very masculine <laughs> way, very very concerning way. Sir, please. <laughs> uh, Dangerously well, And well, I guess that also wraps us up on Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker. Looking ahead, as usual, we will probably have a little break in between Now and Revengeance, but we will also do some extra episodes in between uh, Now and Then as we play that game and get our notes lined up for analysis. I guess I should also point out that we hit our first Patreon stretch goal of 75 followers at patreon.com slash nuclear bomb. So we are now obligated to do a Matrix episode for you, uh, which we'll probably, you know, we'll talk heavily about the new movie, but we'll probably just get out a lot of our Matrix thoughts on the entire series properly. Have you seen the Animatrix, Brian? Yeah, I haven't watched it in a long time, but yeah, I saw the Animatrix. Okay, I haven't seen it, so I'll try to watch that as well, um, so we can talk about that in full. I was a big. Um, I don't think guy. I'll get to play that game where Morpheus dies, <laughs> though. Uh, uh, between now and then, you may at some point get to see the the new Matrix quote unquote game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's neat. 
and as for Revengeance, it's definitely going to be a different tenor than our coverage so far, as I am playing this game for the first time, and I won't have years of time to synthesize an analysis. If we do full breakdowns like we've been doing, or have it just be a little more conversational and open, we'll, we'll see. I think you'll be able to get some. I think the, the boss characters, at least, there's enough breakdowns with those characters. I can definitely uh, see us maybe going a little bit more how we did Metal Gear Solid 1, which was kind of before how we figured it out, where we just did, like, here's an episode on the bosses, here's an mm-hmm. episode on mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see. I want to play the game in full and have a little bit of time to think about it before I start outlining the rest. But I'll, just I'll say this. There. It's not going to be a... This isn't going to be a podcast for pussies anymore. <laughs> now we're getting alpha male shit shredding guitar kono yo ni unda okasan anata no ai ni つまれて何も知らずに生きてゆくならそれは優しいことだけど That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is Podcast Sans Frontiers at gmail.com and at Pod Sans Front on Twitter and Instagram. You can support the Podcast Sans Frontiers and all my other projects at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which manuclearbomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering The Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. I'm also, I'm still Brian. I'm no longer a long way anyway, unfortunately. Great game. I love it. I love Peace Walker. It's a great game. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, we're the last time to find a way when heavens divide. When heavens divide, I will see the choices within my Um, but then, but for, I think, licensing or branding reasons, it eventually just became tortilla chips. Zero popping in, like, once you pop, you can't stop. And Snake's like, what? I got to leave that in as a transition, so I'm not. Actually, uh, Zero, would be, Zero would be talking about, like, some obscure, disgusting British snack. <laughs> some biscuits of sorts. <laughs>